Hi, we're back for a second season of 1823 Podcast. A new season means new guests, new talking points and new theme music, but our plan is the same. I'm Stuart Arrowsmith and I seek out experts from Liverpool John Moores University to talk about a whole bunch of interesting subjects. This episode is about faking it. We're talking deep fake videos, political propaganda and fake news. Yes, this man does feature. Fake news. It's fake. Phony. Fake. I think he might be as influenced by news outlets himself as what everybody else is. It's just that he's in a position where he's got millions of followers on Twitter. He's the President of the United States and whatever he says is there for all to hear and read. It's quite scary, really, because already we're seeing a lot of you know, polarisation, we're seeing people discounting what they refer to as mainstream media, mm. we hear people talking about you know, fake news and all this sort of thing. Really, what we're talking about are issues of ethics. The idea of using uh, visual means to try and convey an, a narrative um, and to try to alter political realities through that narrative literally predates the risen world. 1823 podcast. Well, there's a video that's gone viral this year, been viewed millions of times online, and it's been described as the most convincing deep fake video yet made. So it got me thinking about how the manipulation of information and spread of fake news has evolved with the development of new technologies, and that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Later, we'll discuss the history of fake news and its impact in shaping world events, and we'll talk about the political implications of fake news being spread as we move towards an election in the US and maybe here as well. First of all, though, we'll talk about the dark art of video manipulation, and I've come along to LJMU's Department of Electronics and Electrical Engineering, and I'm joined by Dr. Dave Ellis, a senior lecturer in the Media Technology Group. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Well, thanks very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, and I must say I've never felt under more pressure to get my recording levels right and everything else as we sit in your sound booth here, but um, thanks for joining us today. Um, The camera never lies, but it it tells fibs sometimes. Yes, well, what goes into the camera is one issue. What comes out isn't actually necessarily the same as you would expect. Mm. So really what what it boils down to is that... The lens will capture whatever's going on in front of it. And of course, what's happening then is it's being converted into electronic signals. And particularly now that we use digital video, those signals are compressed and they're manipulated for the purposes of, for example, reducing bandwidth, which reduces the cost of transmission and storage. But in doing so, it also opens up opportunities and possibilities for people to manipulate things that are perhaps hidden by that compression system. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that in more detail in a minute when we talk about one example of a, a video being manipulated. Yeah. But let's just talk for a minute about the video I mentioned at the start. And this features the 2008 appearance of comedian Bill Hader on an American TV chat show. Hader tells an anecdote about working with the actor Tom Cruise, and he, he pulls off a really good mimic of Cruise's speaking voice. He was like trying to place me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So he sat down next to me and he's like, I, uh, I love your work. <laughs> and uh, I go, yeah, you know, I'm friends with Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen and they went to your house. And he went, yes, 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 I, uh, they did come to my house. And... As he mimics Cruz's voice, Hader's face appears to morph into Cruz's face. And like lots of people, Dave, I re-watched that several times to try and get my head around what was actually happening. What's the creator achieved in doing that? How has he done it? 
Well, what is achieved is um, <laughs> is very interesting. Um, uh, it's it's surprisingly effective. Um, and I think what he's achieved is an ability for us to start saying, hang on a minute, what exactly is it that we're seeing? How it's been done is, is rather more difficult to say, but to, to a large extent, what it relies on is the fact that what we think we're seeing is a function not only of the quality of the image as uh, a function of the, the number of pixels, for example. Everybody's always talking, oh, we must have more pixels, more resolution, more definition. Um, but it's actually really about the fact that it's a moving image because our, our eye and brain work in such a way that when we are looking at a moving image, the resolution that we are able to perceive is in effect lower than the resolution that we can perceive on a static image. So all the background around him, which isn't moving, if we looked at it in detail, we'd be able to see lots of detail. But as he moves his face around a lot, we are in effect uh, being fooled by the fact that we aren't actually able to see anything like the resolution that the screen can display to us. Okay. And we'll put a link to that video on the uh, on the notes section for this episode as well, so people can have a look if you're if you're not one of the five million plus people who've been watching it in the last couple of months. To me, as a layperson, it's it's really convincing. What about you as an expert? Do you see the joins, or or do you think that's a, on, a well done piece? On that particular clip, I'd say that was a pretty well done piece. Okay. It's quite it's quite tricky to see. I mean, to be fair, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't aided by the fact that, uh, you know, I didn't know who he was. Um, you know, we're, we're recording this in England, that he's uh, obviously very big in America, but yeah. he's not a big star over here as mm. far as I'm aware. But then again, it could well be that I'm completely out of touch. It wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. I must admit, I, I just thought, because I, I wasn't really familiar with him, I just thought he really looked like Tom Cruise mm. the first time that I saw it. But um, no, it's a it's a really well done piece. It's obviously prompted a great deal of concern from some people about, oh, well, what are the implications of this? What could other people with ill intent do with that? Um, I mean, what what is the potential for doing that? Well, you know, it, <laughs> it's, it's quite scary, really, because um, if we assumed that... In that clip, he's actually um, he, he's got you know real sort of footage of Tom Cruise and, and various other people, and he's been careful to you know blend that in with the with the movement of of uh, of, of the actual person's head himself. Um, that's taken from real footage, uh, but I I don't think it would be impossible if you had a good enough artist then who's to say that we couldn't then take those animations and fake the actual video from the animations rather than from real footage? I don't think it's going to be impossible. Mm. But, you know, but how would we know? Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we can't tell. If it's, but, if it's good enough, we can't tell. Yeah. We've seen a couple of other manipulated videos gain a lot of attention over the last year as well. We'll just talk now about the video that was shared by the White House following an exchange between President Trump and the CNN reporter Jim Acosta at a press conference. Before we talk about the video, let's just remind ourselves, let's hear the audio of what happened. I think you should let me run the country, you run CNN, All right. and if you did it well, your ratings well, let me ask, much better. If I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question, Mr. President, if I may, if I may Wait, ask Peter, one other question, are you worried? That's enough. That's Mr. enough. Mr. President, I, well, that's I was enough. going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Mr. Excuse President, me. That's enough. Mr. President, I had one other Peter, question, if I may ask, on, on the Russia investigation, are you concerned 
that that you may have I'm not concerned about anything with you the Russian investigation because it's a hoax. Are you, That's enough. Put down the mic. Mr. President, are you worried about indictments coming down in this investigation? Mr. President. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. So the key part of that exchange is where Acosta says, pardon me, ma'am. That's because a White House aide is attempting three times to take the microphone from his hand. And that's where the video that was shared by the White House, it wasn't created by them, but they shared it. Uh, that appears to differ from the official, in inverted commas, video of what happened at that press conference. Yes, and it, it, it's quite interesting. If you do a frame-by-frame -frame comparison, <clears throat> again, this comes down to this issue of the fact that you can see on the still image, when you've frozen the motion, you can see the differences. Whereas when you play it rapidly, we have a combination of persistence of vision in the eye and the brain, um, and effectively this, uh, temp this sort of r uh, reduction in uh, the visual acuity of the eye as a result of that motion, um, you can't actually see when it's playing that it's been doctored. But when you look at the individual frozen frames, you go from frames that look as certainly as though they've been captured using progressive scan. In other words, you know, we build up the image one line at a time, you know, one after the other down the screen. And then you look at the, um, the version that was issued afterwards, and you can see a double feathered edge. Now, that only happens if you are blending two frames or fields uh, as they're known if you're using interlacing system of, of scanning, if you're trying to blend those two together because anything that moves has moved from one field to the next field, maybe a 60th of a second later, bearing in mind that it's America, not the mm. UK, where it would be a 50th of a second, as soon as you, so, soon as you look at the, st the stop motion, the frozen motion version, you can see the two edges appearing together on the same image. You go back to the original and they weren't there. So it's very clear that it has been um, changed in one way or another. So um, it's, it's quite interesting because the, the overall effect was to try to portray uh, the reporter as sort of pushing the White House uh, official you know, slightly more violently, far more violently than was actually the case. It was just a gentle sort of, you know, uh, a, a deflection. Whereas in the in the version that was issued later, it's quite a sharp movement. Looks as though he's really mm. pushing her. Um, now, you know, there are theoretically a variety of reasons why that could happen, but it's very difficult to imagine any particular reason why any of those possible circumstances would have happened accidentally. Mm -hmm. Did you pick up on it when you saw it the first time, or has that come about through analysing it frame by frame? Do you, do you think they did it well? Um, do I think they created the alter? Um, I, I think they probably did the best that could be done with the technology that they had available. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly, uh, like most viewers, um, if you don't know what you're actually looking for, it's completely convincing. Mm. Um, and again, it, it, it relies on this business that although it is possible to change certain things in a video image, 
um, an audience will often subliminally know that something's not quite right or they will prefer a particular version of something and they don't know why it is. The only way that anybody would be able to see it, whether they're an average viewer or uh, somebody who is more expert in the technology, is to effectively to freeze frame each frame and look at them. Mm. Now, you know, your average viewer isn't going to do that. Yeah. And this is, in that sense, it's the most powerful medium for manipulating information, isn't it? Because, you know, I think people would accept that newspapers follow a particular agenda, perhaps, but you always trust your eyes. And mm. if you can no longer trust your eyes, well, where do we go with that? Absolutely. And this is this is what is going to, I think, be so difficult in the future. Um Already we're seeing a lot of you know, polarisation. We're seeing people uh, discounting what they refer to as mainstream media. Mm. We hear people talking about you know, fake news and all this sort of thing. Really what we're talking about are issues of ethics um, uh, as well as of technology. Uh, and I think the, the two sort of collide um, uh, possibly quite spectacularly in, in, in instances like this where you know, a political message is, is trying to be manipulated or maybe not, if, depending on whose side you believe. Yeah. Dave, thanks very much for that. That's really interesting and sets us up to talk to our next couple of guests about history of fake news and propaganda and then talking a little bit about the political implications of, of doing exactly that. So thanks for joining us on the podcast, Dave. Hope the levels are okay for you. I would imagine they, they look okay. <laughs> and let me just uh, point people towards a, a really interesting blog that you wrote about the Jim Acosta incident as well. It goes into a lot of detail about the technical aspects of what happened there. Well worth a read and you'll find a link in the notes section for this episode on our website and wherever else you get your podcast from. This is 1823 Podcast. Well, deep fake videos of the type we've been talking about are a relatively new phenomenon, but the practice of manipulating images and information for ideological and political purposes is certainly nothing new. To discuss the origins of so-called fake news, I'm joined by Dr. James Crossland, a reader in international history at LJMU. Hi, James. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. Now, we're talking about deep fake videos today. Um, should we regard them as simply new technology bringing a new dimension to the traditions of fake news, or are we in new territory here? Um, we're in new territory in as much as uh, the distortion of a visual medium in real time, for, for want of a better term. That is certainly new, but the basic premise of what the, the deepfakes set out to achieve is as old, basically as written history. In fact, it predates written history. Um, an artifact from... 5,000 years ago, uh, produced in pre-dynastic Egypt, Egypt before pharaohs and pyramids and everything else, uh, depicts a king in the region, a fellow called Nama, uh, smiting his enemies and, and hauling them off into captivity. Now, most historians and archaeologists now concur that this is an early example of fake news, 5,000-year-old example of fake news. Before writing was even invented, this palette depicted these images and was sent out by Nama to try and convince people across the Nile Valley that he was a grand unifier of the region, that he had defeated all these kings in battle and everything else. Um, so the idea of using uh, visual means to try and convey an, a, a narrative um, and to try to alter uh, political realities through that narrative, it, is, it pre literally predates uh, the written word. Initially, we, we suspected that it was, it was true. Further investigation revealed that actually, at, at the very least, it was an embellishment of what actually happened. Because it's quite 
an important distinction, isn't it? Someone who does peddle fake news isn't necessarily lying to us. No, I think it's important to define this term fake news more concretely because it is it is used in a very blanket sense these days, increasingly so. Uh, at its most diabolical, it's used by people to decry things that they simply don't agree with. Um, so I, the way I see it, there's basically three types of fake news. There's the fake news that we, we used to just call scandal and rumor, and now we call it fake news. And that's your tabloid stuff, um, you know, what, what's going on with the royals, what's going on with, you know, this, this reality TV show, et cetera, et cetera, scuttlebutt and things. So that's a form of fake news that's basically designed to sell newspapers or, or, or whatever else. And then we have narrative fake news, which is uh, deliberately constructed using various, various means and suggestions um, through various different news stories. So not a single clickbait story, but a series of them with, with various other uh, means of, of disseminating information that's designed to, to sway an opinion or to put a, 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 a false truth out there. Um, and then we have the, the sort of cousin of that, the third form, which is, I think, the most diabolical and problematic, and that's strategic fake news. And that's fake news where you're not just trying to lay out a false narrative, but you are actively trying to use that narrative uh, use that narrative to affect actions. You want people to act upon the, the, the truth that they now believe to be. Um, and at its worst, what we get from that is things like um, the uh, recent spate of shootings that have happened in, mm. in the United States and then uh, in uh, New Zealand as well, where what appears to have happened is you've had white supremacist uh, people inclined towards that who've gone online They've been sort of triggered and, and, and pushed in a direction towards thinking that uh, only through violence can they solve this problem. And this problem is a narrative that's been put out there that um, immigrants are taking all our jobs or that Jews are behind some grand conspiracy to control the world, whatever it is. Um, so that sits at its worst. And that's kind of what's been happening now increasingly um, because of the access to technology that everyone has. And what about historically? What are some of the the biggest events that have happened as a result of that kind of misinformation being peddled? Well, as a, as a fake news event, there's probably nothing more spectacular um, just for the sensationalism of it than uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast, mm. which is the, the uh, sort of archetype of, of a fake news event. Now, that didn't alter the world, but it did perhaps get people start to start to think that, oh, you know, how easy was this? To, to put out a radio broadcast and kind of, you know, disseminate it in that way. Um, and that kind of bled into what, what had been happening around that time, which did alter the world, which was the use of strategic propaganda by the Nazis. Um, the rise of, of the Nazis was in no small part owed to the propaganda machine created mm -hmm. by Josef Goebbels, um, who understood how to manipulate uh, the masses. He understood mass psychology, um, uh, groupthink, and he understood how to use images, uh, evocative images, like the, the swastika itself, um, to try and sort of evoke um, uh, feelings uh, that would override, you know, facts and common sense, quite frankly. Um, so that's, you know, one major example. I think we also have to think around uh, leading up to the, the American Civil War in 1861. In the 1850s, you have this 
explosion of fake news in what was called the yellow press, which was mm -hmm. the sort of, I mean, we talk about the partisanship of our press today, um, nothing compared to what it was in the 19th century, when, when just flat out lies were printed. And you basically pick, picked and choose which newspaper you read based on your political bias. And in the, in the 1850s, you have this groundswell of um, not only fake narratives being put out there about an imminent slave rebellion in the South, uh, conspiracy theories around that about how there's there's uh, white republicans in 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 uh, washington who are facilitating that conspiracy and this gets gets built up built up over the course of years and then ultimately in 1859 we get um the abolitionist john brown's raid on harper's ferry which is this grand sort of uh, you know seen by some people as a terrorist event which really is is the catalyst for this sequence of events fired by fake news that collapses political discourse it leads ultimately to the outbreak of a civil war in 1861. Mm. The word propaganda carries such negative connotations, mm. doesn't it, as well? I think people do think of Goebbels or, you know, the Ministry of Truth in 1984 mm. and so on. But can it also be used as a positive in the right hands? Well, th there was a counter to Goebbels during the war, um, and that was um, in, in Britain the political warfare executive, mm. which was a... a an intelligence uh, group that was set up to conduct strategic propaganda operations against uh, the Nazis. Now, you know, if we if we take the side of the Allies in the war, which hopefully we do, um, then we, we look at that and say, well, this is this is basically a case of trying to use Goebbels' weapons against him. Mm -hmm. um, what PWE did was they dropped uh, fake news leaflets. They disseminated uh, f what they called sibs, which were sort of rumors. Um, through through uh, cafes and barracks and shops across across the occupied territories, um, they dropped fake newspapers, entire newspapers that were that disseminated fake news, and all of this was designed to spread rumors about uh, Hitler's fitness to rule. Uh, Himmler is about to launch a coup d'état. Uh, there are there are German troops in the Wehrmacht who have uh, gone over to communism on on the Eastern Front. Germany's running out of fuel, food steel, whatever, and it was all designed to get the German people and people in the occupied territories thinking, well, inevitably we are going to lose, we may as well rise up now and depose Hitler. That was the ultimate aim. Now, obviously it didn't happen, but it was an attempt to try and use propaganda for the, the inherent good of trying to defeat Nazism. Mm -hmm. And if it plays a role in the ultimate triumph of the Allies, then morally... Is that acceptable to use propaganda in that way? Do you think? Well, I, I would, I would personally say so. Yes, um, I think there's a certain naivety that would come with any idea that you know we can we can live in a world without propaganda, mm. um, and that you know this is this this is some great wrong. Um, strategic propaganda has been used for as long as governments have existed and militaries have existed. It's 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 built into the governing practices of many states. Um, and has been for a long time, and I think probably always will be. Um, so the moral question, I, I think, it's a debate worth having, but for my money, I think if you're using, if you're using it for, for the purposes of defeating a, a particular sinister form of propaganda is out there, if you're using it as a counter-propaganda, then it is, it is certainly justifiable, but then we run into the slippery slope, which is that when you start using, when both sides in any particular quarrel start using propaganda on a mass scale, we get into a situation not unlike the one we're presently in where we, we are in what, what's sometimes referred to as a post-truth 
uh, or I, I like to refer to it as a post-shame mm. uh, era where people are just flat out lying. And, and they're doing that in accordance, interestingly, with the, the idea that was uh, put forward in Mein Kampf by Hitler. He said, you know, always tell the big lie. Don't tell the little lie. The little lie people will be ashamed of. They'll see through it. Um, you'll get nervous about it. Tell the biggest lie possible and keep telling it. And if you keep telling it, eventually people will cotton onto it. And that's kind of where you get to when you go down that slope of using propaganda just as a, as a norm. How much responsibility do you think we have as the consumer? Do we have a, a role to play in overcoming the threats posed by fake news by being less passive in the way that we process that information and, and thinking more critically about what we see? Ideally, yes. Um, propaganda only works if people swallow it. You know, it's it. You can you can tell the big lie over and over again, but if people don't buy it, they don't buy it. The problem is that that the big lie has become easier to buy, particularly at moments of of crisis. What's perhaps disturbing, and I don't mean to you know take this down some horrible sort of uh, path, but what's perhaps disturbing about today is that when I think about historical examples of epochs where we've gotten into this sort of post-truth state of mind things have inevitably ended badly and they've mm. ended badly because people we've gone past the point of reason where we we the people can be relied on for our critical judgment in some respects yes we do have a responsibility but i think there's also an argument to be made that at a certain point forces kind of move beyond uh the the point where the individual can reel it in because we we are so confused we are so overwhelmed uh by information that we even for critical thinkers, it's hard to, to discern what, it, what is real and what is not. Mm. And what seems to be an increased level of cynicism towards leaders and politicians actually plays into the hands of people who want to peddle fake news as well, because people just kind of think, well, I don't believe any of it yes. anyway, so it doesn't yeah. matter yes. how big the lie. Yes, completely. I mean, it leads to erosion. And it leads to, as you say, opportunities for people who, who can see that erosion, they exploit it, and that's when fake news thrives. Um, and so back to your point about the individual, the individual can discern what is, what is real and what is not. It's within our mental capacity to do that, and particularly now because there is so much education out there about fake news, increasingly so. What's problematic is that I think increasingly we're at a point where people subconsciously or, or consciously they don't want to, to learn. They don't, they don't want to know what's real and what's not. They want to go with whatever they think in that moment is good. And that's the problem. Technology being what it is, it will, it will probably only get better. Mm. Deep fakes will only get more sophisticated. And then we run into that problem, as I say before, of the, the state we're presently in, where um, it will be a lot easier for people to look at something like I don't know, Mark Zuckerberg saying that Facebook is some grand conspiracy to take over the world, it will be a lot easier for them to look at that and go, yep, I buy that, than to, than to think for a second, hang on a minute. Would he, why would he say that with a camera in front of him? Mm. Why would that ever be recorded? You know, he's not, you know, he's not an idiot. Why would he do that? There's a, there's, a, there's a sort of critical function in our brains that I think a lot of people are more and more willing to shut off. And, as I say, the people who understand that are exploiting it, and that's where the deep fakes have come from. It's not just the growth of the technology that allows it, it's people understanding that we're now at a point where we, can, we are willing to look at someone who we don't like or we've been told through various narratives elsewhere out there is, is, is bad or is up to no good, 
and we are willing at this point to look at them and, and hear them say the things that, that, that we dread that they say and, and be, it's confirmation bias, basically. It's the ultimate form of confirmation bias. What you see is reality. Um, and in that sense, it is rather frightening. Okay, well, that's a downbeat note to end I'm, with, I'm afraid there's a, it's hard to find a positive <laughs> note to end on, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, sorry. I don't have... <laughs> okay, well, plenty of food for thought. So, James, thanks for joining us today. That's Dr. James Crossland, Cheers. a reader in international history here at LJMU. You're listening to 1823 Podcast. Well, we heard a clip of him earlier, but we can't discuss fake news without talking in more detail about Donald Trump. The US president didn't invent the term, although ironically, he did falsely claim to have done so in an interview in 2017. But he has done perhaps more than anyone else in recent years to popularise it. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. That was just fake news, fake news. The fake news. The fake news, fake news. The fake news, fake news, fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. So a lot of it is fake news, I hate to say. The Collins Dictionary calculated that usage of the term fake news increased by 365% in the 12 months after Trump was elected. And as the 2020 election campaign gets into gear, we can expect to hear plenty more of it in the months ahead. My next guest has written about President Trump and fake news and is exploring its impact in his thesis. So welcome to the podcast PhD researcher at LJMU, Paul French. Hi, Paul. Hello. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. No worries. And as I say there, you, this is something you're, you're really deep into at the moment, doing your research. Just tell us a little bit about what you're looking at at the moment. Uh, yeah, so the overarching um, uh, crux of my research is moral panics of terrorism and um, their effects on discourse towards human rights. Basically, does a mass fear of terrorism, um, would it allow for the public to then go on and sacrifice human rights to remedy the, the, the threat of um, the, the threat of terrorism. So, um, one of the main principles of a moral panic is that the the fear outweighs the actual threat of mm. whatever it is that 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 the, that the public are worked up about. And it's no easy job trying to um, trying to justify disproportionality of terrorism, trying to play it down and w- w- being sensitive to the to, to the to the issues surrounding it. Um, but one of the things that helps to build up an issue within a moral panic is media, um, media's uh, presence um, as, a, as, as, a, as a main source, I suppose, of information towards whatever the issue is for a lot of people. Um, and now, especially within the, um, I suppose, the last maybe five, six years, we've become a lot more aware to the, uh, the presence of fake news media as well. Um, and we're only really beginning to sort of see the ramifications of fake news and the implications it can have on not just maybe from my perspective if you're looking at terrorism but also on just any other many other aspects of society as well democracy obviously being one of the ones in the in, in the in the media at the minute um, I think there's an article the other day about how social media um, and search engine providers like Google Facebook Twitter etc are starting to band together now um, mm. especially around election times to try and sort of counteract um, the effects of fake news that are floating around within their within their platforms. Mm. And you argue that Donald Trump, in his use of social media and the kind of content that he shares on there, he is fueling fear and anger that's aimed at minority groups. Well, he hasn't helped. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, politicians during election times will say whatever they need to say, I suppose, to get elected, but a lot of them have restraints. They'll maybe bend the rules sometimes, but um, a lot of them will find um, find their core support and they'll run with that. And he found his niche quite early on. Um, you know, that populist rhetoric was, was, was playing to a lot of people's ears and he just amplified that, I think, whenever... Mm-hmm. Um, whenever that was realised by his campaign team um, and he never looked, he hasn't looked back since but as we know a lot of the things that he comes out with are far from accurate themselves and it's ironic that he's able to spout against other news agencies like CNN and um, and whoever else that he feels doesn't give him a fair mm-hmm. here in, in, um, in, in, in their own discourse that he's then able to flip that by just producing just very, a lot of inaccuracies himself while he's pointing at the other side and saying, well, what you're saying isn't true. Mm. Do you think he believes some of the content that he shares or is it purely a political tool to, to fire up his base? In an ideal world, I'd like to think that he doesn't. But whenever part of my research, which I'll get to eventually, will be to analyse the, the social media comments on specific uh, news articles. So I'm going to be looking at what people are saying in relation to the news content. Um, so far, I've had a bit of a look um, without getting into any real detail. And there's a lot of people that would believe 100% everything that comes out of his mouth. It's not really above... Um, um, I suppose it's not really out of the realms of expectation that he would actually believe a lot of what he says as well. They, I, I would imagine if it's probably a bit of a 50-50, really. Mm. Um, I think he might be as influenced by news outlets himself as what everybody else is. It's just that he's in a position where he's got millions of followers on Twitter. He's the President of the United States. And whatever he says is there for, um, there for all to, to hear and read. A lot of people would argue that what he refers to as fake news is is simply reporting or comment that doesn't agree with his viewpoint or his decision making but as we know political comment and analysis is partial it reflects the the views of the proprietor of that media outlet so actually does he have a point that there will be anti-trump elements of the media who will distort and misrepresent just as much as some would argue he does Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if you even look at the UK, um, we've got pretty much every other news outlet has a political agenda, so they're never going to give a fear a fair hearing to whoever it is on the, uh, I suppose, on the opposing side. Um, and it's not, it's um, arguably more uh, polarised in the United States, where they, I suppose, right up there with their freedom to bear arms is the freedom of speech, where news outlets will probably get away with. Um, being more one-sided and a lot more biased in their news reporting so he won't get a fair hearing from um, certain partisan news agencies but is the answer to that to for him to deliberately put out um, divisive and misleading um, comments and uh, pieces of information himself it's not but it strengthens his core base as well so the, the term hierarchy of credibility comes to mind and it's the last few years of, of between politicians and media have just shattered that. Um, and that's the, probably the biggest ramification of all because we, we're in democratic societies. Democratic societies only work if we believe in the process of voting trustworthy politicians in 
to Congress, Parliament, whatever, um, if we believe that the information that we're getting given from news outlets, no matter where that they, like, uh, no matter whether are actually legitimate news, without that, people are, are always going to look. If they, if if faith in those institutes are dampened, people are going to look for replacements, and those replacements at the minute seem to be given to a, a large amount of people through fake news distributions and that's mm. probably the worst ramification because when you sit down and think about it how do you come back from that mm. and what do we do as the population in response to this I mean, we spoke to james earlier in the episode and, and asked the same question really where does the responsibility lie here oh we we, we now i'd argue have the biggest responsibility of all um we do live in an era where we can pick and choose our own media where we gather our information from and because of that, we have a responsibility to pick the information that is truthful, um, that comes from a, uh, from a um, from a legitimate source and isn't uh, biased against or um, against our own beliefs, which is probably fairy tale stuff, really, mm. to be honest. But um, but it is it it's it's a big undertaking that the public do need to take. Um, if we go back to moral panic, um, my research on it, or past research rather, um, always seemed that. Other studies on moral panic, the public were basically just a dependent variable of other social actors like the media, politicians, mm-hmm. concern groups, etc. They're always just the, 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 the they we were the ones that were influenced uh, by those other groups. Whereas now, we've got a much much bigger role to play in it, um, mainly because of internet and social media. Um, mainstream media will put out whatever they think is going to make them more money um, and we need to show an interest in the stories that matter um, and we need to show an interest in um, just more credible news really and um, mm-hmm. we need to not take everything that we see on the internet for granted me mm-hmm. um, we, we, we've known this for probably as long as the internet's been around but now it seems to be I suppose a lot more disguised yeah but we should be if, if it seems like we're getting a lot more information directly to things like our Facebook accounts or Twitter accounts then we need to ask the questions why because we're starting to realise now that um, algorithms and everything else are playing a part in the news that we receive Mm -hmm. Um, and I suppose if we want a more rounded view we need to actively go out and search for search for opposing information ourselves Um, if anything it'll make us more informed but we can't just allow ourselves to be trapped in this bubble um, of our own beliefs, this confirmation bias that we seem to that we seem to get gratified within comment sections and articles that we see anymore. Um, yeah, the public now need to take a bit more responsibility themselves instead of finger pointing at politicians and media and whoever else because we have the power now, or we have the power at least of the information side of things. Yeah, we have a tendency to, to retreat into echo chambers, particularly on social media. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, my research in echo chambers has found that actually, um, the echo chambers research is a, is, is a, it isn't quite well supported because a lot of people who hold strong views will actually go out and follow um, right. at least some people um, of the opposing only to gather information on the argumentative side. Though. Right. Research will show that they'll, um, um, someone who has right-wing, left-wing uh, leniencies will possibly take in information from the other side but only for the purpose of being better at arguing down their points and we need to kind of drop that and maybe be willing to listen to, to other sides but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. Okay 
thanks Paul thanks for coming in and battling through your cold to oh, uh, to, to chat to us um, and we will we'll put the links to uh, to Paul's article uh, that he referenced there on the uh, conversation in the notes section um, of the website and wherever else you listen to the podcast as well that's Paul French who's a PhD researcher here at Liverpool John Walsh University 1823 podcast well thank you to my guests on this episode Paul French Dr James Crossland and Dr Dave Ellis you'll find links to the various articles and videos that we've talked about in the show notes for this episode on ljmu.ac.uk or wherever you listen to the podcast. Now, let's give you a taste of what we'll be discussing in the next couple of episodes. Crime is evolving all the time. Um, we, we live in a world where we are constantly uh, have half an eye to, to terrorism threats and, and, and the risks that they pose. And if this kind of technology makes society safer for the vast majority of people, then I believe that the vast majority of the public would say no, it's there, it should be utilised. We had this real great moment of just seeing ourselves being in a space where we've got such a shared commonality, being in a place where we understand each other's struggles and being in a space where we don't normally see this level of representation. That's all to come on 1823 Podcast. In the meantime, thanks for checking us out. If you've enjoyed it, please rate and review us. Our producer is Michael Humphreys. Our cover art is by Ryan James. Our editor is Ben Jones. 1823 Podcast.